This is The Medical Beat on 97.1 FM Talk. All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, This is 97.1 FM Talk, and you're listening to The Medical Beat. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Harvey, and we have Chad on the board. And we have a very special guest with us today. This is going to be exciting. Uh, Today we have with us Dr. Kevin Black from Washington University. Say hi to everybody, Kevin. Hey, welcome. Hey, yeah, yeah. So so glad to have you on the show here. Um, Hey, so uh, Dr. Black is a uh, professor of psychiatry at Washington University, uh, at the Washington University School of Medicine, uh, also has faculty appointments in the departments of neurology, radiology, and what was that other one? Neuroscience or neuro, neuro what? Yeah, neuroscience. Neuroscience, yeah. So um, I was telling him I have to tease him about being in four departments. <laughs> How many departments does one guy need, Kevin? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm... My weight is enough to sustain that, you know. Oh, okay. 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 All righty then. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, so, uh, yeah, so so Dr. Black does a lot of amazing research in in various areas of neuroscience, and uh, which includes a lot of neuroimaging studies with what, I guess, PET and functional MRI and things like that. And his recent research... Uh, or a, a lot of his recent research is focusing specifically on uh, Tourette's disorder. So mostly today we're going to talk about Tourette's syndrome, and we're also going to talk about some of the research going on in Dr. Black's lab. And so, so to start out with, I, I want to ask the question. So, so Kevin, I, I think a lot of people, uh, when they think about Tourette's syndrome, what they picture is that uh, that episode of The Simpsons where, where Bart Simpson uh, fakes Tourette's syndrome. Uh, so I, I guess the first thing I want to ask is, that, did you see that episode of The Simpsons? I looked it up because uh, yeah? I thought you might ask about it. Oh, okay. Um, All right. So, you looked at, so did you see the YouTube videos of that or did you see right. some of it? Yeah. Right, right. So, yeah. um, you know, w- w- John Mink, who was a professor of child neurology here before he moved to New York State, um, Mm -hmm. used to say that uh, maybe 10% of people with Tourette's have the cursing that it's Hmm. kind of famous for. But 100% of people with Tourette's on TV have it. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. He just meant that it's, you know, like a lot of things on TV, you... um, you see a caricature of reality sometimes. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Anyway. And and I, yeah, and I, I guess I guess the cursing is a much more dramatic symptom. So of course they'll want that on TV. So which is, yeah. Right. Sort of. So yeah. So right. what? Can, so can you tell uh, everybody? Some, mm-hmm, go ahead. Well, I was going to say. I mean, the the show had some elements of reality. I mean, you know. Um, so so basically to. To, to let people in on what we're talking about, um, Tourette's is defined by ticks, T-I-C-S, not the not the bugs, but uh-huh. um, little re- repeated movements or noises that people make, and um, a lot of them are very simple. The most common ticks are things like, you know, shaking your head or blinking forcefully or um, sniffing or throat clearing, mm-hmm. things that we all do sometimes, but we don't live with it hundreds of times a day. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas somebody with Tourette's um, will will take many many times a day, yeah. um, and it's not something that they're trying to do or, or 
you know, set out to do that day or anything like that, it, um, it seems uh, more inevitable. Yeah. Or something they can't stop even if they try to. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so, yeah. so it's most, mostly verbal ticks and also movement kind of ticks. It sounds like. Yeah. The, the movement ticks, the motor ticks are more common. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes people have only those, uh, but, uh, Basically, to make a diagnosis of Tourette's, you have to have motor and phonic or vocal tics that start in childhood that aren't explained by some other condition yeah. that lasts for at least a year collectively. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so when Tourette's happens, it starts in childhood, and then what happens after that? Does it persist into adulthood, or does it go away, or what, what happens after that? Yeah, I mean, that's been one of the questions that I've been most interested in with my research. Um, uh, we know we know something about kind of the average person, but nobody's the average person, right? You know, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. and um, what what patients or parents are always most interested in is, well, what about my kid? How can I predict what's going to happen with with my myself or my child? Yeah. Um, and the the kind of short summary is that. Most people who ever develop tics um, never have a problem with them after a few months. Um, And most people who have tics for a year or more long enough to diagnose Tourette's, um, most of them end up having relatively few problems with tics over the years, even though the tics tend to persist. But then there are about somewhere maybe a third of people with Tourette's who um, go on to continue having problems with the tics over the years. um, And for some oh. people, it can you know really be uh, a major life problem, and on average, the quality of life is decreased in people that have Tourette's compared to other folks. Got it. So, so for people who have who have ticks in childhood that last at least for a year, roughly for roughly two thirds of them, the problem kind of goes away, and for roughly a third, it continues into adult into adulthood. Is is that right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's right, and uh, it's an interesting thing because the, um, the the definition of Tourette's has changed some over the years, and it used to be that you only counted it when it was, you know, bad enough to ruin your life at the moment, kind of, you know, or to cause you real problems in, oh, in yeah. social relationships or school or something, and, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, at the moment, it's more like, well, you know, we, we're interested in the biology, so whether it's bothering your life might come from a lot of different factors, your support that's available to you and all this. So we're going to count everybody who still has ticks. And, yeah. and when you do that, almost all the people who have Tourette's in childhood still have ticks as grownups if you stare at them, you know. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, if, if you look hard enough. In the office or whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but, you know, if, if, they're, if they've disappeared to a point where you don't really worry about them, then, you know. Oh, yeah. Argue that that's not much of a disease, right? At that point, right. So, so for a lot of people, the the problem gets small enough; it's not really a problem anymore. Exactly. Yeah. So, so overall, the prognosis is good for most people, and and knowing why it gets better in many people and doesn't in some people is one of the key things that we're interested in in my lab. Oh yeah, right. And and maybe uh, maybe trying to understand the illness better so that you can do more to help that one third of people who continue to have it through adulthood what for, for, for someone who continues to have Tourette's through their life and for for someone that it's bad enough to cause a problem what does that typically look like or how does that how does that play out in a typical patient's mm-hmm. life 
Yeah, well, the um, you know, th there's a, a quite a range, and some people can have tics that cause pain or um, injury, you mm. know, to themselves. But uh, the most common problems are with society, you know, with jobs and school oh. and um, interpersonal relationships. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine you go for a job interview. You know, you already spent time putting on your suit or whatever, you know, buffing up to try to look your best. Yeah. Um, and then you start the interview and all of a sudden you make a noise or you shake your head or something. And the person who uh -huh. doesn't know you across the desk is like, eh, it might be, I don't know about this person. So, <laughs> right, right. Ah, that's, that does, yeah, yeah, I get it. So, right. hey, yeah, so we're going we're gonna to go out for a commercial break, but we're going to be back really soon. We're going to talk more with Dr. Kevin Black from Washington University from the Kevin Black Lab. And we're going to find out more about Tourette's Syndrome. Be right back. You're listening to The Medical Beat. All right. Hey, we're back. Uh, you're listening to The Medical Beat, 97.1 FM Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Harvey. We have Chad operating the board, and we have with us our very special guest, Dr. Kevin Black uh, from the Washington University School of Medicine. If you're just now joining us, uh, Dr. Black is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and also in the, in the Departments of Neurology and Radiology and Neuroscience. So in addition to holding, a, holding faculty appointments in uh, more departments than anybody else I know of, uh, he also is well known for some fabulous neuroscience research. Currently, a lot of his energy is turned toward investigating Tourette's syndrome and more broadly uh, toward investigating the relationship of, of ticks to, to Tourette's syndrome. And uh, before we left for a commercial break, we were just talking about how is it that, uh, that ticks influence uh, the lives of people who continue to suffer from symptoms of their Tourette's syndrome. And it sounds like a lot of those, uh, a lot of the problems with that are uh, is, is this right, Kevin? It, it's mostly, uh, I, I guess a lot of it is that uh, it causes embarrassment or stigma or things like that if people are having tics or making funny sounds and things like that. Right. That's often um, the biggest problem. You know, we, we live in a social world and yeah. um, tics seem for whatever reason to especially affect the movements and noises that we make as part of communication, um, you know, our face and shoulders and yeah. Um, throat. Um, and, uh, you know, there are other ways that ticks get in the way, things like um, distracting you from what you're trying to do. I mean, like if you're oh. trying to take a test and like, A, you're sitting there thinking, don't make that noise, don't make that noise. Oh. And, and B, every like 15 seconds, you're flicking your arm or something, you know, your oh. focus on the exam is going to be a little impaired. So, Oh, I can so, imagine. Yeah. And, and I guess, yeah. I guess, especially for kids, do they do they have like a, do people make fun of them at school or things? Do they have problems with things like that or? Yeah, uh, that can be a big problem. I mean, I think there are some trends in society where you know people are trying to fight against bullying in general, and yeah. people are trying to be a little more aware. But you know, we're all we're all human with our own biases and stuff, and kids are kids. So yeah, it can be a problem. Right, hell is other people, as they say. So yeah, <laughs> right. Oh, okay, yeah. So 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 overall, it sounds like. 
Uh, you, you were telling us before that with Tourette's syndrome, for a lot of people, the problem sort of goes away by adulthood, but for, and for a lot of people, the problem gets small enough that it's not really a problem. But, but there's also some people for whom it continues to be a problem, uh, even, even in adulthood. Um, so I, right. I guess, yeah, so I guess uh, w- with your investigations about uh, Tourette's syndrome, can you tell us something about, um, uh, can, can you kind of tell us about the research that you're doing in your lab, preferably using uh, small words? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so so I don't forget to say it. Um, you can look all this up on our webpage. It's ticks.wustl.edu. Cool, ticks.wustl.edu. Got it. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so that has links to the different studies we're doing and general information about Tourette's and treatment and so on. But, yeah, we're fortunate the Tourette Association of America has named us a center of excellence. Um, together with uh, Washington University and the St. Louis chapter of the TAA, the Tourette Association of America. Woohoo! Um, Excellent. Yeah, and yeah. so, so it's it's been um, so uh, in my lab we've been focused for years on the very earliest steps of how Tourette's develops. So you know, somebody that starts having a blinking tick, let's say, you know, why does that maybe go away in some people, but then develop into more ticks in other people. Um, mm-hmm. And we're, uh, you know, we've already found a couple of very interesting things, like um, ticks completely disappear much less often than we thought. You know, in other words, if you bring people in and, and watch them when they don't know you're watching, um, the ticks are still there much more often than we thought. But, oh. you know, in, in a half hour, you know, regular, uh, you know, or a 10 minute for that matter, doctor visit, yeah. you know, you may not have any ticks visible and, they may uh, not be bad enough to bother things, you know, and so, yeah. Um, so anyway, and we found that there are there are factors about the um, the person that can tend to predict who's more likely to have the ticks continued. Things like having anxiety or having, um, um, oh. uh, you know, being less able to hold back the ticks when when we ask you to. Um, those are things that can. Oh. Uh, can can predict somewhat a worse outcome, so we're still oh, yeah. um, doing that study, collecting more information, and that's for kids that are age five through ten who have started having ticks within the last you know six to twelve months. Right, right. And are are you currently recruiting people for that study? Oh yeah. Ah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And <laughs> yeah. If you if you just you know Google yeah. new ticks n e w t i c s you'll uh-huh. you'll find our study. Info. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, my, my colleague, Deanna Green, um, is uh, in charge of a study that looks at the next stage kind of at people who already have Tourette's um, ages 10 through 14. Because uh-huh. a lot of times during that age is when ticks start to improve. Uh, you know, not in everybody, of course, but on average. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so um, she's collecting um, clinical information and MRI information to see you know, how your brain is working. Uh, and see if that can predict again who improves and who doesn't over that period of time. Oh, that's way cool. C- can you can, can you tell us a little bit about what has she any specific findings from that, or is is there like a a specific part of the brain that's malfunctioning, or or would that be a yeah. vast oversimplification? Well, that that study just got underway about a year and a half ago, uh-huh. um, so it's a little too early to know. Uh-huh. But we do have some results that tend to show that 
there's information in the brain activity about who's, um, uh, you know, that separates out people with ticks and people without. And at the mm -hmm. moment, the the separation is kind of uh, a little confusing to describe. But mm -hmm. but the point is that the information is there in brain activity, and so we we expect that we'll be able to to uh, predict for the future. Nice, and and also maybe to find out more about what the biology is of ticks or what. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, most of the treatments we have for ticks have been, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, kind of you trip over them and um, and it, and they were invented for some other purpose and they tend to work. And yeah. it would be really nice to be able to, to to develop treatments based on the science, you know, um, oh. of why, why we have ticks. Right, right. Maybe to have, to have better medications in the future. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, we... Uh, we're doing one research study right now, in fact, into a, an investigational medication for Tourette's. And, um, really? Uh, you know, so people who who could benefit from treatment for ticks, but who also wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be inappropriate to be on a placebo for a few months. Um, right. Uh, you know, we're looking for folks like that, too, that, that's uh, in children with um, Tourette's. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So, so uh, before we run out of time, can can you kind of go over if if someone has a kid with ticks and they're interested in enrolling in the study, what are the what are the qualifications to be in the study, and can you tell us again where they can look to to find out more information? Sure. Well, the, the easiest thing is um, go to our webpage, tics.wustl.edu, uh -huh. and um, there will be links there to how to contact us and whatever. And yeah. basically, our currently enrolling studies are all for children and adolescents. Mm -hmm. um, we've done studies with adults before, and we'll do them again. But yeah. um, and, and we're happy to just sort through and talk to you over the phone about whether it might be appropriate or not. So basically yeah. anybody with ticks or thinks, you know, worried that they just developed ticks, um, we'd love to talk with you. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So even if, uh, even if someone isn't sure if they qualify or they're not sure if they want to do it, they can give you all a call and talk about it and figure out what to do from there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no pressure. We're trying to be, we're trying to do everything right. And, you know, um, uh, people that want to help us out with the science, that's wonderful. And for people who it's not appropriate, that's fine. You know, we, we just want to be good to the community that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And so that's ticks.wustl, W-U-S-T-L dot edu. Yeah. All right. And you have multi right. multiple studies going on? How, how many? How, how, do, do, you um, ever, do you ever sleep, Kevin? How many studies are you doing? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I'm involved in three of these studies right at the moment. Oh. We're trying to we're trying to do some more. Um, uh -huh. There's a really fascinating thing. I don't know if we have time for it, but uh -huh. there's this fascinating thing that just came out of Nottingham in England about um, kind of zapping your peripheral nerves lightly to try to affect the way your brain fires, and and uh, we're trying to get involved in that also. You know, but we don't we're not oh. doing it yet. So oh, but but you might be in the in the near future. Yeah, we're trying to be. Oh, that that sounds excellent. Wow, that sounds good. So, all right. And how about uh, any? Um, I, I think we just have a little bit of time left. I, any idea what, what what the future's like? Are there going to be better treatments on the horizon soon? Not so soon. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, just in the last few years, um, you know, advances include um, the FDA approved um, a new drug for Tourette's in the last five years or so. Um, oh. 
and uh, uh, Eric Pipperzold. Um, right. And uh, the um, the efficacy and safety of behavioral treatments for ticks has really become better known in the community over the last five or ten years. Uh-huh. Um, genetics research has kind of been going on for ages, but um, just in the last five years or so, it's really started getting a toehold on. And, uh, you know, as we get collect more samples, um, yeah. uh, that's probably going to revol- revolutionize things at some point because yeah. we know it's uh, uh, yeah. a largely her- her- inherited yeah. condition. Yeah, Excellent. Science marches on. All right. Hey, thank you very much for being here, Dr. Black. This has been Dr. Kevin Black from Washington University. And Chad is playing the music. That means we got to go. So everybody have a good weekend. Be well. And out we go. Thank you. Listening to the medical beat. All right. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is 97.1 FM Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Harvey, and you're listening to the medical beat. Uh, we're going to switch gears now and talk about something new and exciting. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, a drug called Vivitrol. And Vivitrol is used for alcohol and opiate dependence. Uh, it's, a, it's a drug that's been around for a long time. It's naltrexone, but it's naltrexone in a long-lasting injection. And uh, we're going to find out more about that. We, as our very special guest today, uh, we have uh, Jordan Malone, who's an RN within Synergy. Say hi, Jordan. Hi there. Hi. Hi. Hey, thank you so much for being here on the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, you bet. You're welcome. Yeah. So so the first thing I want to ask is, so I know uh, the place you work uh, in Synergy uh, Alcohol and Drug Rehab, uh, that they, uh, they offer uh, Vivitrol for people who have problems with addiction uh, to either opioids or alcohol. So, so there's a lot of stuff to ask about. The first thing I want to ask about, we'll kind of take it one at a time. So let's let's start with opioids. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, about how Vivitrol fits into treatment of opioid dependence? What's the what's the deal with Vivitrol for that? Absolutely. Yeah. So when we talk about Vivitrol, it's naltrexone but extended release. So it's given by injection, and the way that it works, it's an antagonist or what we call a blocker. Uh So it works by blocking the opiate receptor, Uh and when that receptor is blocked, there will be no response or no pleasure when an opiate is taken while taking Vivitrol. Uh And in addition to that, it also helps um, the psychological part of cravings for opiates too. Oh, okay. So, so if someone is is taking Vivitrol, then if they try to get high, basically they won't get much fun from it. Exactly. There's no pleasure whatsoever. They don't feel it. Well, okay. So, the, I, and I can see how that could be a huge help for someone with an addiction problem, and and they would also have less cravings to start with. Definitely. Right. Okay. And uh, so I know that uh, you know Vivitrol is is. Uh, is you know it's the same thing as naltrexone can you kind of go over how come what the advantages are of doing an injection instead of just a pill for naltrexone why why the injection sure yeah. sure so 
When we talk about an injection, it's much easier to adhere to the directions of, of Vivitrol because it is given by an injection, mm-hmm. and it allows um, patients to just make that decision, that one decision per month versus uh-huh. making that daily decision that a pill would essentially require. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So if someone has problems with addiction, if they take Viv- if they take that dose of Vivitrol, then basically they're sort of covered for a whole month. Exactly. They're Ah. protected for that entire month. Yeah, as opposed to a pill where if they decide not to take their pill that day, then they can shoot up again or whatever. Exactly. They they get to pick and choose. Right, yeah. And I guess as a psychiatrist who is also, I mean, I don't have nearly as much experience as you guys do, but I've, as as someone who has treated people with addiction problems, I've, I've noticed the obvious, which is that people will flip-flop back and forth from one day to the next. You know, one day they're like, oh, my gosh, I've got to kick this drug habit. Mm-hmm. And then the next day is I'm, I've got my dealer on speed dial, you know. <laughs> you know so Absolutely. Compliance is a huge thing. Right. Yeah. So Okay. So with Vivitrol, uh, it's a once-a-month shot. And, uh, and then once they make the decision to get that shot, then they're good. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. They're protected until the next month, and then they come in again for their next dose of Vivitrol. Yeah. So how do how do patients respond to that? Do they do they like doing the shot? Has it, have you had success with it? How has it been going? Most patients respond very well to Vivitrol, and definitely from you know that compliance standpoint, they don't have to to have that worry or have that over their head. Um, every day of the month. They know once they come in and get that injection that they're, you know, able to kind of set their addiction aside for, the, you know, that month until they return the next time to get their next dose of medication. Yeah, yeah. And I know, you know, people who are having trouble with addiction, it, sometimes it can be just a struggle for them every day. So if... if it's a daily if, reminder for them, and that's, you know, something else that can cause some additional... Yeah. Additional stress for them. Right, yeah, because if they have to remember to take that pill every day, then that that's another thing to remind them they have a problem, and also another another opportunity for them to say, "Oh, maybe I'll just skip that pill and and do drugs." Yeah, absolutely, and it's a good peace of mind for family members as well, knowing that their loved ones are on Vivitrol. Right, right, yeah. How does that usually work? Is it usually the patient who comes in for treatment, or or is it like someone's wife or husband or dad or mom who twists their arm and brings them in. How how does that usually go? Well, we get both, of course. Um, We have parents that are pushing them. We have, you know, circumstances where they've lost their job or, you know, they've gotten into some legal trouble or something like that. So sometimes that's the factor that's motivating them. But we oftentimes see patients that are, you know, ready to kick this and ready to get treatment and they're there willingly and, and are motivated to stay sober. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess a lot of the people you see there are people who have failed other sorts of treatment for their opioid addiction. Oftentimes, yes. Often they've went to so many different inpatients and outpatients and different detoxes and tried several different anti-craving medications and nothing has seemed to, to stick for them. Right. Yeah. And I know, I know in, in my own psychiatric practice, you know, I've seen a few people who have problems with opioid addiction and what always surprised me is that there are so many people who, you know, have been treated for their opioid addiction at other places, and a lot of it is 
you know, is like touchy-feely therapy. And, and, and therapy is important, of course, but therapy by itself sometimes isn't enough. Or, you know, they have, they have therapy or people trying to talk them out of using. But for some reason, they've had this problem for years and no one has offered them Vivitrol. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. There's medication-assisted treatments are definitely you know, something that can greatly help a patient, and it's important to you know yeah. be familiar with what Vivitrol does and how it can help. Yeah, you know, because everybody's different, but I, I think for from what I've seen, there are some patients for whom you know all these other treatments are just not going to work, but once they get Vivitrol, boom, they're done. They're they're better. You know. And, and I guess that's what you guys have seen a lot of, too. Definitely. Um, Vivitrol, you know, works um, better with counseling. It, it is indicated to be used in combination of counseling. So that's definitely something that we encourage. Um, Vivitrol yeah. is a great tool to be able to utilize. So it's not a cure, but it is a tool that can be used by patients to be able to, you know, help meet their, their treatment goals. Yeah, yeah, okay. So it's not... So I guess add in synergy, it's uh, you offer Vivitrol, but you offer a lot of other stuff too. Because I guess I guess just going in there and taking a shot is is not going to cut it. There's got to be more to it than that. True, true, true. So we have a Vivitrol clinic program. So we have patients that you know have already been detoxed and they're interested in Vivitrol, and we can service it that way. Oh. Um, so essentially, what happens is we service Vivitrol and we become a part of their treatment team. So working together with their psychiatrist or their therapist. Um, and offering that service of Vivitrol, but we do offer other services too. So an outpatient detox is one of them. Um, so maybe someone's interested in detox and maybe they haven't, are interested in Vivitrol and haven't been detoxed yet. That's okay. We can, we can help with that. We can get them detoxed uh-huh. and they can do that in the comfort of their own home. So during this time while they detox, they do have 24-7 access to our clinical team at Synergy. Uh-huh. And when we talk about Vivitrol, it, like I said, it really should be used in combination with counseling. So that brings us to our other programs, which are a three- or six-month program, uh-huh. and that really covers all the bases. So that psychiatric and psychological services, so meeting with our physician, mm-hmm. and he's board-certified in addiction and psychiatry, mm-hmm. and then we talk about that therapy. So the individual group family therapy is also offered in those programs. So we have a variety of things that we do at Insynergy that that can help. Oh, very nice. Yeah. So, so you offer a lot of different things so you can sort of customize the treatment to what that particular person needs. Yeah. Absolutely. We are a personalized treatment program. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And how about, uh, can you tell, can tell me a little bit about what, what kind of side effects are there to the injection? Is that um, any, sure. any bad stuff? Sure. Well, with most medications, side effects can happen, um, but the most common side effects that occur are injection site reactions. So what that means is pain, tenderness, swelling, those types of things at, at the injection site. Oh, okay. Okay. So sometimes sometimes the injection can hurt and otherwise, uh, and that's, uh, but sounds like there's not much side effects to Vivitrol overall. So, yeah. Overall, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. All right. Hey, uh, we're going to be back in just a little bit. Chad's playing the music. That means we got to go, but we're going to be back. We're going to be back. We're going to talk more with Jordan about uh, Vivitrol and the treatment of substance abuse. We'll be right back. 